Good morning, everybody. It is January 22nd, 2021, and we are now live on Facebook streaming for our Tales from the Heart podcast. Today, I am joined by Dr. Harry Lever with special guest, Kathy Wilson, who is an HCM warrior and patient who is going to share her amazing journey. And I'm going to stop by screen share here and say hi. Good morning, everybody. Glad that you could join us. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Lever. Good morning. And we're going to start a little differently than we normally do. So just as uh, housekeeping, this is being uh, recorded live on Facebook for our Tales from the Heart podcast, which could be downloaded anywhere after Monday. Uh, so you can go to Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and you can download it and you can listen to us anywhere. Um, I wanna let you know there's gonna be some announcements at the end about an upcoming event on February 6th and the link to learn more about that event is located in the information uh, below this uh, webinar or podcast. <laughs> I always forget what format I'm working in. So um, we're gonna start with Kathy's story. So I'm gonna do something I don't normally do and I'm gonna, gonna pin Kathy to the, to the screen so we all focus our attention on Kathy and her story. So Kathy, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and then we'll start diving into your HCM story. Sure. Um, my name is Kathy Wilson. I am 42 years old. I um, originally from Oklahoma, born and raised in Oklahoma, but all my family is from Indiana. So I'm from Swayze, Indiana. And um, so my story started back in 2000, where I, I had um, a car wreck and they heard a heart murmur. So I went to a doctor and he referred me to a cardiologist and I had um, an echo and I did the exercise echo. I remember I was on um, a treadmill and when I got after the treadmill, he said that you're fine, no big deal, no worries. I was then 24 years old. And I remember my EKG showing that I had had a, um, a heart attack. So and I, I kept questioning that and he, he had just kept saying, you're fine, you're fine. Your, your heart's fine, you're 24 years old. So I went on and in the meantime, I saw probably had another couple um family doctors that heard my heart murmur I even worked for a doctor's office that um a doctor would would have a student he'd say let them hear your heart murmur it's so loud it's so it's it's amazing how loud this is and I was like yeah but it's just an innocent heart murmur I've been to the cardiologist it's just innocent so then I moved forward 10 years later I went to a new family doctor and she said, she's actually a nurse practitioner and said, your heart murmurs so loud. I've got to send you somewhere to get it checked out. Of course, I left out there very upset and went to a cardiologist in um, Marion, um, just another small town close to where I live. And he told me, he looked at the old results from 10 years prior and said that it actually came back inconclusive. And he said, it also came back inconclusive this time and I don't do inconclusive. So then that's where he sent me for an MRI of my heart. And then it was three weeks of waiting. I, he calls me and tells me you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Schedule, I got an appointment scheduled. 
I was in his office for about an hour and a half, very upset. And he, he just kept saying, what? If, if you're going to have cardiomyopathy, this is the one to have. Don't worry about it. And he put me on, I believe, I don't know what milligram of metoprolol he started me out on, but he kept just increasing the dose, increasing the dose. I remember I worked downstairs at the, from, and the cardiologist's office was upstairs and I, I would call up there like my heart rate's 35 and I was freaking out and, or my heart rate's 40. He's like, if you're functioning fine, you're fine. And so, so after that, um, that happened for almost four years. And then he left, he went to um, another state. So then I went to another cardiologist in Indianapolis who again did another MRI of my heart. And he called me on a Tuesday after I had the MRI on a Saturday, he calls me on a Tuesday and said, I need you in here Friday. We need to do a test. You need a defibrillator now. So I remember my husband and I were pulling up to um, a restaurant to eat. I didn't go in that restaurant. I immediately went home. I was hysterical. So I go in there on Friday. And when I go to register, they said, you need to sign because insurance is saying you don't qualify for a defibrillator um, and you will need to pay out of pocket for this if it doesn't cover. Should have been my first clue to go get a second opinion, but me being so scared, and of course I trusted the, I mean, he's a doctor. So I didn't even know what test I was having, if I'm honest with you, I, I had no idea. So. Then we go back there and um, I signed the paper that I would pay for it. And the test was electrophysiology test. Electro mm -hmm. or, um, so it was, it was gonna be an EP study. EP study, yes, yes. To identify, and I'm gonna pause here for a second because EP studies in HCM have been a class three indication, which means does harm, since the first guidelines were published in So the fact that doctor was going to do an EP study to prove the point that you really needed the ICD that the other data didn't support is a huge red flag. And tell us what happened next. So, so after the EP study, I, well, I came out, was in recovery and I had gotten the ICD and then it was, probably so I get that I recover that did a lot to me mentally honestly um having to have have that and then um about a month later I just I don't know what I was I was laying in bed and I just typed in on Facebook hypertrophic cardiomyopathy I'm like surely I'm not the only one with this heart condition so then I found um the HCM Facebook page and for a few months you, Lisa, along with others, but you were like, get to a center of excellence. I was like, what is the deal? I'm being seen by a doctor. I even went to a, another a doctor there that was partners with this other one that um, I, he's like, what are you afraid of? I was like, well, I don't want to die from this. And he said, you've got this now. You've got a defibrillator. You have less than 1% chance of dying. Just stop. Like, like they were treating me like I was, I shouldn't even be worried. Like I had a common cold, I felt like. And that I was overreacting, which in turn made my family 
think that I was overreacting, honestly. So I'm going to pause you there for a second. And I'm going to pause it to say, I want to, un I think you're unpinned. I don't know. This thing is bothering me now. I'm going to go to gallery view. So this timeline, and, and I'm, I'm going to share my story and with your story. So we are now, and she has her grandchildren there. So grandchildren are making an appearance on Facebook, um, which is lovely. Thank you. So this is all happening in the fall of 2016. For me, for those of you who are in the community, this is the time where I had to be working from home, not because of COVID, but because my heart was failing and I needed a transplant. So I wasn't working the same hours and I was kind of struggling a little bit more with my own stuff, but there was this woman who had my attention and I knew what was going on, even though she didn't fully articulate it yet, because after 20 some odd years of talking to these patients, she had every symptom of obstruction. She had every sign of obstruction. It sounded like pretty significant obstruction, although I hadn't seen anything yet. And her anxiety level, self-disclosed, was beyond through the roof. Um, the, the anxiety about 20, 15 years of misinformation. Murmur in 2000, oh. now we're in 2016, and you're so bad you need an ICD imminently, like within like a week without being able to research it and to do your to, to really become friends with the device ahead of time and not using the guidelines to get that device put in to begin with. All of these things I was watching and saying, this poor woman is, is living in a life that she doesn't have to be living in. She can be way happier, way calmer. We just need to get her through this process. It, it was a big process for Kathy and I to get through this. And I'm gonna hand it back to Kathy to explain the next part of the process. So it's, it's the fall of 2016. You've got your ICD in. I'm begging you to call the office and set up an appointment. And you finally do. So what happened? I do. I finally do. I set up the appointment. And you had talked me into um, going to the Cleveland, making the appointment at the Cleveland Clinic. So I, I call and make the appointment. And I made it for a few months out. How many months? <laughs> about six months out. So I mean, and you're like, why are you doing it? I think I came up with some excuse for like, I was in the process of new insurance or, or something like that. I, I don't know, but I, but I did. Um, so even I'm trying to think, cause it was summertime before summertime that I, that I made the appointment. And then it was not until December 7th that I ended up going. So yeah, I, I put it off. Just because I was scared of going, I, I was, so then on my appointment, and I, I do, I have very bad anxiety, um, which has, I mean, now that I have my life back, I just, my anxiety, I still get anxiety and I still get depression, but it's nothing like I used to have, nothing. So on December 7th, um, I go to the Cleveland Clinic. We drive the five hours to get there. Um, stayed in the hotel the night before um got there and I say I learned more about my heart condition and, and I was there for about 12 hours getting all the tests um it was I was scheduled there to be two, two days but Dr. Lever got me in everything every test and everything he wanted he got me in for one day but I tell people I learned more about my heart condition in the 12 hours that I was there than I learned in since um I had been diagnosed in 2012. 
So let's pause here. Dr. Lever, you've had a chance to go back and review Kathy's records and you saw her in clinic that day. When she walks in, what were you presented with? What was the clinical profile? Uh, the, she was sh having shortness of breath and some chest pain. And, uh, you know, she had the heart murmur and we went ahead and uh, did an echocardiogram and her septal thickness was uh, 25 millimeters. The normal is 11 and she had a leakage of the mitral valve. We grade mitral regurgitation from zero to four. Hers was like two to three. And we, uh, we put her, uh, we reviewed her outside MRI scan. It confirmed the 25 millimeter septum, but there was some scarring in the muscle. It was not, it was moderate. It wasn't severe, but it was there. And uh, then we went ahead and we did a, a stress echo, a meta, what we call a metabolic stress echocardiogram. We can measure how much oxygen she needs and is uses and uh, what her exercise tolerance is. And it turns out the exercise, the heart rate went up, uh, but the exercise tolerance was not very good. And she had some degree of obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart. As a matter of fact, we gave her some medicine to inhale called amyl nitrite which is an inhaled form of nitroglycerin, which can cause a headache, but it cause, it, if, if you have a tendency for the mitral valve to hit the septum, it can and, and cause obstruction. That, that's what we use it for, and that's what happened. She developed severe obstruction. And you know, we saw that, we saw that the, the degree of leakage and the fact she was so symptomatic, and I told her she needed to have surgery. And, and the other part of Kathy's story, which nobody really wants to talk about, is she was a bit more overweight than we would have liked to have seen at that time. Right. And um, so th there's also another tagline to the story, and it's about weight loss. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, too. Um, so she's obstructed. She should really be losing some weight. And she's got pretty severe anxiety. And from your clinical assessment, um, you identified all of these factors and recommended surgery, but not six or eight weeks down the road. When did you, when were you able to schedule the surgery? Within the next few weeks, we got it done. And I, cause she was, you know, she was symptomatic. She had obvious problems and she was very worried. And I thought we should, I always feel that people should not, um, uh, sit and worry about things. It's better to get it over with and be done with it. And, you know, and I, I, that's what I tried to do is get her done as soon as we could. And so we could get her past this problem she was having. Cause it's a bad thing to suffer. You don't want to suffer. You want to feel better. So now Kathy, you've, you've met Dr. Lever, the, the crazy girl from Jersey who said, I really think you need to see him and pushed and pushed and you tried to cancel and you tried to postpone and you tried to not go. You went, did go. you got this information and I, I, I'm going to kind of break the drama here. It did not break your anxiety immediately, did it? <laughs> it did not. No. It, did it not. probably amped it up a little bit short term. And what was going through your mind at that point? Oh, I was, I was scared to death. I honestly, I, for the, since 2012, I had stopped living anyway. I would go to work, I would come home and I would sit. My husband had to do all the grocery shopping, all everything, because I just, I, 
I couldn't do it because my anxiety was too high because I was just waiting for the waiting to die because I had false information. And I just, and I'm, you know, Dr. Lever was talking about my shortness of breath and stuff. I, I remember walking out of work in the parking lot and uh, calling my mom, I'm like, I think I'm developing asthma. And she's like, really asthma? I was like, yeah, I think I've got asthma now. Cause I'm just having such a hard time breathing. Or like I would eat and my heart would just pound like so bad. And I just, yeah. So we, we love your, your sidekick. So let him just go. I'm We're sorry. Okay. No, it's great. You can keep up with him now. Thank God. I can. Surgery. <laughs> That's a little bundle of energy back there. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I, like I, I was, saying the other day what you got him a tractor for Christmas and I live out in the middle of nowhere where it's cornfields and he took off out in the cornfield was this tractor so fast and I looked up and I just stopped because I was like you know what I never could have done this before he we were so far from the house my house was a tiny spot that's how far from the house we were and I ran out there after him and it just made me stop and think I'm so thankful now yeah well, let's go backwards before we go forwards. Okay. So it's the week before your surgery. It's also like day or two before Christmas. And I get a message from you saying, I am not doing this. I am not going. This is not happening. And I'm, I'm at that point, we didn't know it yet. I'm six weeks from my heart transplant. So I got my own things going on. And I'm like, oh, hell no, <laughs> this girl's going. She knows she needs to go. And I got a little tough lovey with you for a little bit. I'm like, what are you waiting for? Th this isn't the scary part. Living like you are is the scary part. And I know your daughter wrote you a beautiful letter. I remember that. And she sent you, you got to the hospital, you read the letter and you went to surgery and you woke up and how'd you feel? Um, so I woke up in the ICU and I, I remember wake up. I remember, um, I want, I remember the tube being down my throat and I just pointed to it and told them I wanted it out. And they told me they didn't want to take it out too early, but it was the next day. I believe I went to the step down unit and I could already tell a difference. And I mean, it was just amazed, amazing to me. I was in there for probably three or four days and then went to the hotel. Um, but I, I could tell a difference immediately with my, and, and during this time, like our house was gutted. So I couldn't go home after surgery. I had to go to my mom's um, for my recovery for the six weeks. But I mean, re it, it went well. I, the, when I went back to um, Dr. Lever for my um, echo, my follow-up echo, he said, your heart looks beautiful. And that was, that was the best words that anybody could have said to me that, because that, that is when my anxiety started easing up. So. Yeah, it, it didn't happen instantaneously. You had to get through the recovery process. But I can remember right before my transplant, you're like, I think I'm gonna be okay. I said, I know you're gonna be okay. <laughs> You know, yeah, you, you, you've done all the things you need to do. Now, there's obviously we can't predict what's going to happen in the future with HCM. It can be a little unpredictable, but you got rid of the symptoms that were debilitating you. Dr. Lever, how common is Kathy's story? It's very common. And unfortunately, uh, um, 
the uh, it's frequently underestimated. It's uh, um, many people come in that they were told they had asthma um, and, and things like that. And, and um, you know, as time has gone on, the word has gotten out somewhat, but still there's a lot of people that are left with this diagnosis and, or don't even know it isn't properly diagnosed. And uh, just have to, you know, they're all, it comes in all sizes, shapes and forms, and you have to just sort of sort it out and, and see exactly what they have. Not everybody needs a defibrillator. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we've had patients that come that um, uh, continue to have dizzy spells with a defibrillator. And the interesting thing is the defibrillator doesn't go off and it doesn't show any rhythm disturbances. And it turns out it's the obstruction. And uh, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's been uh, a lot of patients like that, that they didn't need the defibrillator. They needed to have the surgery. I'm just putting a note into the... Um... Now, now Kathy's was a little different because she did have some scarring. I'm not going to minimize it. And, you know, one could have argued that 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 was maybe a good idea that she had it, but it did not relieve her symptoms and it never fired and it and it didn't really detect much in the way of rhythm disturbances. So let's it, pause it, there for one second for the novice viewer um, or the new person to HCM. Let's talk about the difference of risk because of obstruction and why we use defibrillators and what they're meant for. So what is a defibrillator used to treat? The defibrillator is used to treat a rhythm that we call ventricular tachycardia, where the rhythm suddenly develops from the lower chambers of the heart. It beats very fast, the blood pressure can drop, and it can go from ventricular tachycardia to what we call ventricular fibrillation, where the heart is just erratically beating and, and it's going very fast and there's essentially no blood pressure and that can kill you. So, that so is, then what the rhythm problem. Uh, that's the rhythm problem. problem. Right. And what the defibrillator does is it gives you a shock and restores the rhythm. And that's the idea and why we put it in. And um, um, there, are, there are patients uh, who, uh, you know, the incidence of obstruction is about 70%. If we talk about resting obstruction, where there's, when you're sitting there, you have obstruction versus provocable obstruction, which can occur, say, with exercise. And then there's 30% of people who have no obstruction. And so uh, those we call uh, non-obstructors. And we, you know, we have to look at, look at all of them to see if they have any risk for ventricular tachycardia. And, one of the, the things that we've come to understand is that the MRI scan, uh, which uh, is called magnetic resonance imaging, we can inject a chemical which will tell us if there is scar in the heart and how much. So if there's a lot of scar, the risk of this rhythm is significant and it's become a very important tool to help us decide that. But I've had numbers of patients come to see me who the defibrillator never went off, they didn't have a lot of scar and they just get better with the surgery when we relieve the obstruction. So ICD is used for rhythm problems, electrical problems. Obstruction is a hemodynamic geometry problem more than anything else, right? Right. right. Okay. So Kathy was told she was at risk for cardiac arrest, which is kind of hazy, but the local doctors completely missed her symptoms were being caused by her obstruction. Right. So 
Also, while this was playing out, Kathy's put on higher and higher doses of beta blockers. Her weight is slowly going up. Her exercise tolerance is slowly going down. So it's a cat chasing its tail in the opposite direction of where we want it to be because we're, you're a woman in your thirties, you've had a few children, now you're on beta blockers and you're putting on this weight and you can't get rid of the weight when you're obstructed because you're on all this meds and it doesn't feel good to exercise with obstruction. And that was a problem. So now we've gotten you past the ICD into surgery and into recovery and you decide I'm going to take on this weight issue now. And you are how many pounds lighter today than your myectomy day? 60. I just got chills when you said that. So you're down 60 pounds. That's phenomenal. How did you, what was the successful way that you lost weight? I know you had some things that you tried and didn't work. Mm -hmm. What was successful for you? So what I started and what I'm continually continuing to do and what I will do for the rest of my life is Weight Watchers. It's, um, it, I track everything, like I was telling Dr. Lever, um, everything that goes into my mouth is tracked on my app, my Weight Watchers app. And it just holds me accountable. And I just, you don't realize how much you're putting in your mouth until you start tracking what you're eating. <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah I, I, um, and, and that, that has to play a huge role in how I feel now, because I, not only is the obstruction gone, but, but the weight is going down and I, I do, I feel good. I feel really good. You look great. How's your anxiety? So much better. So much better. Um, my family could not even hardly stand to be around me, if I'm honest with you, because it was, I was, if you saw me, you would see me doing this, constantly feeling my pulse. Um, every time somebody would look at me, I was, I was feeling my pulse just, in, I don't know, making sure it's still there. I don't know what I was doing, but I, I was constantly feeling my pulse. I, I was constantly talking about my heart condition. That, that's all I, that's all I talked about. Like, and now I live, I, I have a life. I live. And you look really happy. Yes. You've had a few grandchildren since then. I have four grandkids all under the age of two. (laughs) (laughs) And and we see that that takes a lot of energy and I'm really glad that you have that energy now. So um, Dr. Lever, what do you think about Weight Watchers and people with HCM maybe trying to use Weight Watchers to lose weight or just anything to lose weight? Well, I think that uh, uh, an organized diet is extremely important. And whether it's Weight Watchers or some other one, uh, I think the fact that she was keeping track of what she's eating is very important because you don't realize what you eat unless you, you uh, keep a record of it. I was telling Kathy that... Um, I have found, uh, I've been, you know, you know what, losing weight's very difficult. It's a very difficult problem. And I've had some patients go out and get a uh, Fitbit. And they, um, they, the advantage of the Fitbit is it gives you the uh, number of steps that you do a day. It then, from the number of steps that you take, it calculates how many calories you're burning. And then the, the app, goes into a, into a cell phone and you can, in the, a portion of the app, you can write down what you eat, how many cups of whatever, or how, ma- you know, what, how many cookies or what, whatever it is you're eating. And, and it estimates how many calories you've taken in. 
So you know what you burned by the number of steps that you've walked, and then you see how much you've eaten. So you want to always burn more than you, than you eat. And that way, you, it's profit and loss. If you, you take off the weight, you, 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 you cut down on, the, on what you're eating, and you see by how much, you'll start losing the weight. So it's right there in front of you. And that's what's important to see exactly what you're doing, because most people, you know, you just don't have an idea until you write it down. And once you write it down, it makes a big difference. Kathy said a really important word, being held accountable and right. accountable just to yourself. Right. But we've all had those days where, you know, the Girl Scout cookies come in and somehow the package got emptied and we're not quite sure how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't walk a lot that day and there's our calories and that's the pound that we gained. So I think we, you know, I've used these before. Um, I'm not as good as tracking. I probably should get back onto tracking. I did that obsessively for a number of years. Um, after transplant eating became such a challenge. Um, I just ate what I could tolerate and then I didn't worry about it. Now I got to worry about it again, now that my systems are slowed down and back to balance. So we do have a couple of questions from the crowd that are like general. If anybody has a particular question for Kathy, please post it below. If you have a particular question for Dr. Lever, you can just say for Kathy, for Dr. Lever, and we'll address those questions. But we do have a question about bone healing uh, on a sternotomy for a a myectomy. Um, Some patients that I've spoken to have developed um, pain over time, um, or not developed, but maintained pain for eight, 12, 14 weeks post surgery. Um, what is the normal recovery time, Dr. Lever, for the sternum and the pain associated with myectomy? It can, it can to anywhere from six to 12 weeks. Everybody's a little different. And, you know, it's on the breastbone, it, it, uh, it'll hurt longer. And some of that has to do if you have a lot of weight. And the other thing is that women have more of a problem sometimes because of the breast tissue and you have to have proper support in the chest so that it's not putting stress on the incision. As I tell women, gravity is not our friend post-surgery. You want compression. You need a compression bra. Um, Now I I can tell you, you know, I didn't have my ectomy. I had transplant, but it's basically the same process for the chest opening. I got achy chest for probably two years off and on, depending upon how I slept. I'm a side sleeper. So if I was really rolled up when I slept, waking up in the morning, I did get some pain in the upper sternum, but eventually that just went away. And I can't remember the last time that I felt chest pain and I'll be four years out. Kathy and I surgery are, you know, within six weeks of each other. So she just hit her fourth anniversary post myectomy. My transplant anniversary is February 2nd. So it doesn't hurt anymore. My scar is almost invisible. Um, and you don't know that it's there. So pain is normal for a couple of weeks. One of the other things that's helpful is to sleep in a lounge chair. Or, or an adjustable bed. Right. Yeah. Right. That, that does help because you're, you're keeping your shoulders back. You're keeping the sternum open because you're laying back and you're not doing the side roll thing. That does help. Um, another question we have for Dr. Lever is, can non-obstructive HCM turn into obstructive HCM? Yeah, it can over time. Uh, but many, there are a lot of people who never develop, I mean, it's this 30% that never get it. It's interesting when you look at people as they, it's typical that it can go from non-obstruction to obstruction, particularly when you're young, like when you go through the puberty and, and growing stage, uh, 
you can, the heart can get thicker then, and it gradually can develop obstruction. And uh, the interesting thing is all the patients that I've seen over the years, I, I rarely get the opportunity to see them at the beginning of their illness when they have some mild hypertrophy and then it becomes really thick. I've seen one or two, not many. And one in particular, I saw him at the age of 15 or 16 and then I see him back at the age of 25 and he's really got obstruction that he didn't have before because the heart got thicker. So I see a phenomena that somebody's diagnosed in their 20s or 30s and it's mildly obstructed or not obstructed at all. But when they hit like the 40-ish age range, the mitral valve is kind of taking a beating over life. And right. there's an elongation of the mitral valve leaflets and obstruction seems to get worse. Right. Is it a play of the mitral valve lengthening? Is it a role of the septum moving differently? Why do people obstruct in midlife? Well, it may be that the, the mitral valve does get longer. That's again, something else that we don't have much data on because they're, you know, you don't Follow see- over people. time. Yeah, over time, you know, we, I'm just seeing them at one, one point in time and it's hard to have that because, you know, people weren't symptomatic. They had a little bit of thickening and, and then it just gradually changed over time. So we don't, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't see them. But, but we do know we, about 20% of the patients that we're seeing at the clinic now have their mitral valve operated on at the same time the septum is, portion of the septum is removed. So mitral valve problems are not uncommon. Okay, we're gonna pop over to Kathy for a question. How did you best manage your anxiety before your myectomy? Other than texting me in the middle of the night or private messaging me on Facebook going, I'm gonna die and I'm telling you, no, you're not. What else did you do? Um, I didn't handle it very well. I didn't do what I should have done. And looking back, I should have gotten help that I didn't get. So. Gee, did anybody <laughs> you get therapy? Yes. And you fought it. Yes. Did you fight it because of stigma attached to anxiety or just why did you fight it? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know why I fought it so bad because um, my anxiety was very, very severe um, to the point that I would tell somebody if they had anxiety to get help for it. Don't, don't not get help for it because I should have. Things could have ended very badly for me. It was that bad. You scared me on more than one occasion and you know it. To the yeah. point where I'm like, can I have your husband's phone number? <laughs> right. I don't think I've ever asked anybody that before, but, and, and which is why as I'm, I'm preparing to do the podcast season and thinking about who I want to talk to and why you were one of the first patients that came to mind because there's so many cautionary tales in your story. And this could have ended very differently. Right. Not with grandma putting her beautiful grandson on her lap and smiling, um, so I'm, I'm really happy that we got through it, but I think you made it harder on yourself. I, I did. I did. Okay. So you would recommend therapy. You would recommend somebody looking at medication to, to manage their anxiety rather than staying up 24 hours a day, seven days a week growing. Right. See, my anxiety was so bad that I did have my nurse practitioner put me on medication, but then it gave me anxiety to take the medication. So then I couldn't take the medication. It was just it was like a vicious cycle for me. And had I gone to a center of excellence sooner, 
that is my big thing. That is my biggest regret is not going sooner. I tried. You wouldn't listen. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Lead a horse to water. Can't make you drink, but we did it. You got there. Yes. And um, I think it, it's, you know, where you are today. I'm yes. so proud of you. You had to face some significant anxiety and I'm not at all discounting the power of anxiety. It can be paralyzing. And for you, it was really close to paralyzing. And it took a lot of courage to do what you did. So I applaud you. I think you're a great role model for others who are facing HCMN anxiety to just get, get the answers, get the therapy, get the help for the anxiety and the HCM. You can do it together. And we're, we've started the online support group system. I wish that was there for you back then. I think it would have been a help to see other people like yourself. So you can sign up for those on the, on the website. So I, I think you did a great job. We do have a couple of other questions we're going to jump to. Um, Hisham from New Jersey. Um, I, I'm not sure I really understand your question completely. So I'm going to read it to Dr. Lever. Feeling sleepy, like fainting. So sleepy and fainting are very different things. Um, after surgery, is that a sign of a heart attack or signs of medication? So we have to answer the question. Do patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and no coronary artery disease, are they at risk of heart attacks? And what is a heart attack and how is it different than cardiac arrest? Well, I would say people get scarring in their muscle um, because of um, the thickening of the muscle. It, and a lot of times we don't even know why it gets scarred, but uh, usually turns out that people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have large coronary arteries and they're frequently, you know, many times, only about 20% really get classic coronary artery disease. So it's not, coronary artery disease is not that common. Uh, we do see EKGs on patients that look like they've had a heart attack, but when you look at it, it has to do, again, with the thickness of the muscle, sometimes with the degree of scarring in the muscle, but it's not classic, it's not the same kind of scarring that we see necessarily with, with um, a coronary artery disease. Now, if they're tired and things like that, it may be the medicine that they're on. I use a lot of metoprolol succinate, and sometimes the beta blocker will cause people to, you know, you get a slower heart rate, you can get fatigued. And after surgery, you don't tend to need as much medicine. Although I leave most of my patients on some beta blocker, it does, you don't need as much as you did before the surgery. So that so may have be, to be looked at. It would be wise if you are having symptoms after your right. myectomy right. to contact your center, review your medication, see if a change in your medical management is required if you're really, really sleepy and you're really feeling like lightheaded, these are things you want to discuss. Well, yeah, with the, the, other thing, the other thing that's important is to uh, check your heart rhythm. And there are different ways we can check the heart rhythm. And used to be we would do a 48 hour Holter monitor. Now we have devices that can go for 14 days, 30 days. And, and sometimes people have rhythm disturbances that the symptoms aren't classic. And it's very helpful to use those devices. There are, there are devices now also that you can record your own rhythm and send, email it to the, to the physician. So that's the cardia monitor. And right. for those and who don't know, they used to be called a live core. 
HCMA was involved in some of the very early uh, clinical applications and home-based uh, applications of that monitoring system back in around 2014. So it's, it's a known technology. They have expanded um, FDA approval for diagnostics. Um, so it can tell you AFib. The, the rhythms that we have in HCM tended to get a lot of unspecific readings a few years ago. They've updated the technology, make sure you update your app. And they're a little bit better at identifying other types of arrhythmias other than AFib. And they can give that information to your doctor, but you can get it, you can get a strip and just send it to your doctor. You don't need the diagnostic from the company. You need the diagnostic from your doctor. You I, have a, to a PDF. I have a, a classic example of that, that, that uh, happened early in uh, this pandemic. I got a, a patient of mine who had been on a drug called amiodarone and it was stopped because it looked like he was doing all right. He was non-obstructive hokum. Uh, he called into the hospital in the middle of a night, early in the morning of a Saturday and was put in touch with one of our PAs. Um, he fortunately had one of these devices uh, that could record the rhythm. It turned out he was in atrial fibrillation. And what I was, he, uh, he didn't want to go to the hospital because of the pandemic. He was afraid, and maybe justifiably so, uh, came out of New Jersey. And things were pretty bad then, early on in this thing. And uh, so I got in touch with him early that morning. We saw the atrial fibrillation. We treated it back with putting him on amiodarone. And within 12 hours, he was back in the regular rhythm and I could see it. He emailed it to me and we, were, we knew he was okay. So those things now have become very helpful. The other one to help is a, uh, an Apple Watch. And that, uh, you know, I had a patient from the Czech Republic a few years ago who had rapid atrial fibrillation and was gonna need surgery and it, uh, they weren't controlling the rhythm very well. And I was able to treat her all the way from Cleveland, Ohio to Czechoslovakia by being in touch with her by phone and email. And we got her rhythm under control so she could travel to the clinic. So these things are really helpful. Okay, couple other questions. And then we're gonna talk about COVID and vaccines as we wrap up today. Um, and don't let me forget to tell you about the upcoming event. Okay, so uh, Asif, Asif, I'm sorry for mispronouncing that, wants to know what the percentage of patients that will go into congestive heart failure. So I think we need to talk about preserved ejection fraction, heart failure, HCM heart failure versus congestive heart failure. Can you help us with some terminology there, Dr. Lever? Well, uh, they, it depends. You can, have, you can have heart failure symptoms where you're short of breath uh, and uh, you look at a chest x-ray, you don't see much, but if we do a heart cath, we can see that the pressures in your heart are on the right side of the heart are elevated. Uh, and uh, there are all different kinds of you know, ways that it man manifests itself, but um, um, you, we look at chest x-rays, we measure, we measure pressures in the heart and the heart ejection fraction can be normal, but the patient can still go into heart failure where the pressures in the heart are high and you get fluid in the lungs. And that's again, because the pressure is high from the thick walls. And that sometimes is difficult to treat. Uh, about 5% or so of patients go on to have heart transplants, not a large number, but we start 
if, if there's no obstruction and we, we carefully treat people with diuretics so that we don't drop their blood pressure and make the cavity too small, uh, there are some other drugs that we sometimes use, but we've got to be very vasodilators. We've got to be very careful with them because that can also drop the blood pressure when the cavity is small. So there's, and then of course you can get heart, people can go into heart failure uh, if they go into atrial fibrillation, rapid irregular beating of the heart. They can go into heart failure with outflow tract obstruction. And once you treat the obstruction and it'll get better. And clearly if they have obstruction and, and they have heart failure, that's an indication to operate. So once you get rid of thick, thin the septum, do if you have to do something to the mitral valve, sometimes that mitral valve is leaking so badly that we repair the mitral valve. We, we remove some of the septum and it gets better. There are some patients, believe it or not, who have obstruction with normal septal, normal or slightly elevated septal thickness, but it's all the mitral valve that's leaking or just badly obstructing. And so it's, it's gotta be looked at very carefully because the treatment of each one of these classes is different. If somebody has had a myectomy in the past, like four years ago, do not trigger on this one, Kathy. It's a question from the community. If somebody had a myectomy three or four years ago and their symptoms have come back and they're similar to what they were before, surgery, should we jump to the conclusion that the obstruction is back or do we really need to assess what's going on with that heart to see if there's not diastolic dysfunction? Pressing well, you've it? got to look at everything. You know, you've got to, you got to do an echo to start with. Yeah. Do a stress test to see that they're really having trouble. I've had patients come to see me who say uh, they feel bad. We put them on a treadmill. They do good. I've had other people come to see me and said they feel all right. We put them on a treadmill and they can't do anything. So you've got to document how bad the, the exercise tolerance is. And then sometimes we need to do a heart cath. So it, it just depends, you know, you gotta look at everything again if they're not doing well. You don't wanna, you, you, you know, you don't write it off. You gotta go back in there and look again. Okay, for some reason, Pedro, I can't read the rest of your question in the, the form that I have here. But what he's generally asking is, it appears that he's become slightly anemic and it looks like he's got a small ulcer and he's been taking 81 milligrams of aspirin, which he's been suggested to stop. Can you talk about anticoagulation, aspirin therapy and HCM and what we would re really need to know to so determine? He does, so he does have a small ulcer? He has a small ulcer. He's taking aspirin, two, two 81 milligram aspirins a day. Um, and should he be taking aspirin with an ulcer and HCM? Um, well, you don't, we don't want to be taking an aspirin when you're having an active ulcer. Uh, it's a little unusual with that dose of aspirin to have an ulcer. So it, you know, it has to be carefully looked at and the ulcer needs to be treated. And I think for now, I would stop the aspirin and, you know, see what, see what the, is seen. It depends on where it is. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you got to take a biopsy and make sure that there's not a, a real serious problem. Okay. We have a message from the UK from my friend, Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Um, she's thanking us for doing the podcast series and wanted to tell Kathy how great she looks and to thank Kathy for sharing her story. Um, Barbara has had a right heart cath in Texas yesterday. Um, pressures are elevated. Uh, abdominal organs are enlarged. Um, Barbara, I think this is the time when um, if you're not at an HCM center of excellence, you should get to one and possibly to an advanced heart failure program for evaluation for um, 
advanced heart failure treatment, please feel free to call the office. Our contact information is at the header of the Facebook page, and we'll be happy to talk to you about all of the details of your case. Uh, we really can't get into too much detail on specifics on Facebook um, with something like that. Okay, so we didn't ask Kathy what she does for a living, and you mentioned that you were working downstairs from the doctor's office, and we're going to pivot this to COVID times conversation. So Kathy, what do you do when you're working? So I was a phlebotomist up until January, right before the pandemic hit. Um, I work for Quest Diagnostics. I, uh, I now work from home though. So in January, I started working from home, um, calling criticals to doctors and stuff, but um, I've been in the healthcare field for 23 years. And it's good that you're home now, but the question comes in, what do patients with HCM do about the vaccine? First question, should they get the vaccine? And secondly, how can they get a vaccine? Harry? Well, they need to get the vaccine. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we're early on into this problem. The planning for it by the government was very poor. And uh, there, hopefully now uh, there'll be, uh, with the change in administration, they're gonna get things better organized. But what, what I've been telling patients to do is you, each place, like Kathy lives out in the country. You know, there aren't a lot of drugstores where they might be, you know, they're talking about drugstores giving it. Turns out the government is gonna send up, set up some centers in, in particularly rural areas where you can go get the shot. That's gonna take a little bit of time. But I think it's important to sign up with, go onto the computer if you have one, sign up with your local health department. Uh, and some of them may have it, like we looked in Indiana, there's a way she can sign up with the health department where they, they'll notify you when they get the vaccine. Uh, but you can, can sign up in multiple places and it just matters, depends on where you live. Some hospitals like our Cleveland Clinic is giving now, is gonna start giving vaccines to patients after they've They've pretty much given it to the, the employees that are working there. And now they're starting a program to give it by age, the older people first and then going down. But it's gonna take time. And, I, and sometimes what happens is they've had it happen where uh, they have extra doses that they, couldn't, they didn't realize. Or it turns out this, the bottle of the vaccine they thought had five doses in it, it may have six doses of it. And as a matter of fact, the government is going out now and buying better syringes in a way that you get the six doses out of there all the time maybe, so you'll get maybe 20% more out of the vial. So they may, if, they, some, if you're signed up and you, they have some extra left over that they didn't count for, come on down and we'll give it to you. I mean, that's not, that's kind of weird, but that's what's been going on in some places. So people just show up and get the shot, but you gotta, you know, that doesn't happen all the time and you can't count on that, but you got at least sign up and, and just be prepared and just keep your ear to the ground. Things are going to change in the next month or two so that more people will be able to get the vaccine. And they just, you know, there was a thing that was put on the TV last night. If you go to whitehouse.gov, there's a book that they believe this or not, they've already got a book published. You can get it, just look at it on the, it's about a hundred page book, tells you exactly what they're trying to do. So that I haven't, I just glanced at it last night for the first time, but I'm gonna look at it some more. And it's just, a, 
another place for information. But each state, unfortunately, is different and each health department handles it different. But that's a, the health department is probably the way to start. And you might start with the state and then go to your county. You know, and you know, some health departments in some small counties aren't very active. So it's, it's all different. But you got, I would start with the state health department and, and see what you can do. In the state of New Jersey, I signed up with the, the State Department of Health the first couple of days it was open. And I got an email you, you, that I was a 1A because of my classification. Uh, somebody's asked on the page here, am I a one, you know, what's my status because I have HCM. Um, Hisham, if you are NJ because you're in New Jersey, anybody with a pre-existing medical condition is at the top of the list, along with all smokers. I'm not quite sure that I agree with my public health officials on putting smokers in front of cardiac patients and transplant patients and autoimmune patients and all of this other stuff, but that's what they did. And, you know, we can argue with the wall all day. It's not going to fight back with us. So that's who can get a, a vaccine right now in New Jersey. However, you really can't. I cannot get an appointment. I've been trying since January 3rd or 4th to get an appointment. I can't get an appointment and I'm a 1A. I'm the highest risk there is by their classifications and I can't get one yet. So healthcare workers first, I suspect in the coming weeks, it'll become easier for all of us. Um, I'm going to start wrapping this up with um, one last post that I'm gonna read from Facebook because there aren't many places where you can read a post like this. And then I'm gonna to talk to you about a fun event that you can all come to on February 6th and uh, join us for an evening of some fun. But I'm gonna leave that as a teaser for right now. I'm gonna read Linda's post to you. I don't know Linda, hopefully I'll meet her soon. Linda posts on December 12th, or I'm sorry, I died on December 12th. Luckily my partner was there to give me CPR and brought me back to life with the help of paramedics. Now I have a defibrillator placed and I'm still feeling very weak. Linda, we are so happy that you are watching us today and that you had a good first responder and that you had a second chance to get educated on HCM and, and find out more about us and live <laughs> and continue your life. Um, so we're really, really happy for the, for the positive outcome there. I'm sure there's a lot of stress and anxiety going through your mind having experienced an event like this just over a month ago. So please contact the office. We're happy to make sure that you have all the resources that you need to get through this. You're probably going to feel weak for a little while. You've been through a lot physically and emotionally. Um, we're here for you. You found your tribe. So congratulations on being here to watch this video. We're just thrilled when I read, when I read posts like that and I get emails and I get calls that say, I died on this day, but I came back because of CPR because of my defibrillator, et cetera. It's just a testament to science and technology and our understanding of how this body works and how to keep it going. So we're really happy that you're with us now. Um, okay, so there's a link here. February 6th, we're gonna do a kind of unique event. We did this live about two years ago, but we've retweaked it for COVID times in a virtual sense. So when I say we're having an event with the White House chef, that is not just some moniker. Um, Guy Mitchell, who's a friend of mine, is a chef at the White House. He's worked on Air Force One. He's worked in the White House. He's worked for five or six administrations now. I've lost count. And he's going to, we're going to do a cooking class. Come on. 
It's fun. You know, it's not heavy. It's not HCM stuff all night. We're going to learn how to cook three sauces, three different sauces, a brown, a white, and a red. And we're going to cook through as much as you want Barbara Bush's Kenny Bunk Port Chicken Recipe which is a seafood chicken and you can include or exclude whatever you don't want for your own diet. There's going to be a shopping list that you're going to get when you sign up for the event. There is a registration fee. This is a fundraiser. The registration fee is minimum donation of $48. Why 48? Because that's how many years I had to live with my HCM heart. And it was going to be on February 2nd as a celebration of my fourth heart anniversary that's a Tuesday. It's a little difficult to get the chef up here during the week. So we're doing it on Saturday the 6th. And you can use the link on this page or you can go to um, the Facebook page and you'll see where you can schedule your spot in the event. So everybody in your family can join in for one admission fee and you'll have one laptop there. You can cook with us. You can watch. You can just participate. Whatever you want to do, we want to have you there. Uh, first time we're doing a live event like this. So we hope that you'll join us and make it a big success. And all proceeds from this event are going to support the online support group community so that we can ensure that we have a quality product that we're deploying at least 20 times a month. So there'll be when Kathy was lost and I was on Facebook in the middle of the night because I wasn't sleeping anyway. It's not exactly a sustainable model. So now we have about 20 programs set up per month where you can sign in and get support from your peers get some education. We're working with our partners in industry to bring speakers to these support group meetings. I just talked to Invite yesterday. We're going to do about five or six sessions per year with uh, Invite genetic counselors in those groups. We're going to bring in, I talked to Nick Madeira earlier this week. We're going to bring in some of the surgeons to talk in the pre-myectomy rooms. We're, we're, we're going to include everybody in the community in these online support groups. So your participation in February 6th event gives us the resources to be able to deploy these programs. So that being said, I've done my, I've done my part to educate you on the upcoming events. Um, Kathy, thank you so much for being so willing to share such an intimate part of your journey with HCM. We are so happy you're doing well. And Dr. Lever, thank you for taking such great care of Kathy and all of the other patients that you've seen over the years and for your participation today. Any final words or any thoughts? No, Kathy. Kathy, if there's one thing that you would tell people who are just diagnosed and just finding out about this, what's the one take-home message you want them to leave with? Don't panic, get the facts. Harry, do you think those are good for, words to live by? Yep. Fantastic. Thank you all for joining us live on Facebook. We will be back on um, February 12th with Marty Marin. Um, topic to be discussed later. We haven't figured that agenda out yet. So tune in to find that one out shortly. And we'll be back with Dr. Lever on February 26th. And uh, some of these will be just HCM talks and some of them will be patient stories. So stay tuned for more podcasts. And thank you for listening to this edition of Tales from the Heart. And I'm going to... Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4HCM Warriors. That's the number 4HCM Warriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4HCM.org.
For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website, 4hcm.org, and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. Please remember to sign up for the HCM Strong Tour, Big Hearted Warriors Unite. Our virtual tour will begin September 3rd and include dates September 17th, October 8th, October 10th, October 24th, October 29th, November 12th, December 3rd, and December 10th. A few other events will be added. Check the updated registration information at 4hcm.org. Hope to see you at one of our upcoming meetings. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today.